This morning's message is the second message in a series we've begun as a church in James's epistle, which will take us through the summer. And my uh, stepdad listened to the sermon last Sunday, as he sometimes does, and he says, I'm amazed at how the pastor can get so much out of just one verse. And uh, his name is Doc, and I I want to tell Doc this morning, I'm actually preaching on a half of a verse this morning, the second half of James chapter 1 and verse 1. But it's appropriate because in verse 1 of James, a relatively short letter, we have both who James is, which is what we focused on last Sunday, and who he's writing to, his audience, the reader, who's, which is what we're focusing on this Sunday. I want to begin by reflecting back when I was a teenager, describing something I'm sure many of you can relate to, either because you're a teen or you remember being a teenager. I constantly seemed to find myself going back and forth between two extremes. On the one hand, I desperately wanted to fit in with everyone else. Now, I was a teenager in the 80s, so OP jackets were the thing. And there was no way my mom was going to buy me an OP jacket. If all the cool kids wore their pants in a certain way, I was going to do the same, and on and on. But on the other hand, I also found within myself a desperate desire to stand out as my own person, as an individual, and as someone unique, and I didn't know it at the time. Teenagers don't know much. We know very little when we're teens. But this is a universal problem that all people struggle with. Understanding this problem, I think, also sheds light on the challenge that we have as Christians to live a faithful life in the midst of a sinful, fallen, and as I explained last Sunday, a negative world. A world which, being a Christian, is a net negative socially, financially, politically, and in many other ways. Jesus captures this idea with the phrase when he prays for his disciples that they would be in the world, conforming to the world, fitting in in many ways, but not of the world, standing out as unique, standing out as individuals who are different. In the world, and not of the world. The calling of a follower of Jesus is not to try to escape the ordinary aspects of life, but rather living in the sinful world, making a sincere and sustained effort to resist becoming polluted or contaminated by the world's standards or norms. This is what James is about. James the Just, the brother of our Lord, writes to Christian believers who are in a very similar context to our own, struggling to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants them to learn that they have a countercultural calling because of the negative environment in which they live. And the first place that he makes this clear is in the salutation of the letter, the very first verse, when he communicates to us who he's writing to, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion or the diaspora. What does this phrase mean, the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Why is it important? 
To understand the phrase, you need to know answers to three questions. Who are the 12 tribes, first of all? Where is this dispersion? And where are they today? Where are these 12 tribes today? After answering these questions, I want to conclude with an illustration and some applications for each one of our lives. But let's begin by reading God's holy word and asking God to illuminate both the reading and the preaching of his scriptures. Let's, let's hear God's word now from James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So far in God's holy word, let us pray. Great God in heaven, your word is before us, and it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. For the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So now may the words of my mouth and the thoughts, questions, reflections on each one of our hearts, may those be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so three questions to get at the importance of this greeting, this, this uh, statement of the recipients of James's letter. First is, who are these 12 tribes of the dispersion? This is the who question. If it's a puzzle, you can think of this as maybe the first piece of the puzzle. The answer to this who question is that the 12 tribes are actually 10 sons of Jacob, the patriarch of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob is later given the name Israel by God as he approaches his deathbed. Now, I said 10. There are two more. There's 12. What about the other two? Well, one of Jacob's sons was a cherished, a precious son. His name was Joseph, and because of his special relationship with his father Jacob, and also because of the way in which God uniquely used Joseph to rescue God's people in Egypt during a time of famine, because of this, Joseph is given two, not just one, shares in the sons of Jacob. Thus, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Jacob's grandsons, are given a special status. These two, these two of Joseph's sons, even though they're grandsons, are named among the 12 sons of Jacob. So it's 10 sons of Jacob, two grandsons, boys from Jacob's most special son, Joseph, that make up the twelve. What's important about the sons of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, is that these men and their families, years later, give their names to organizing units for the entirety of the people of God, known as tribes. So the sons of Jacob become the way in which God's people are organized as they carry out their generations. It was very important to know which tribe of the sons of Jacob you, you drew your heritage from. Some important things, some very important things could be determined based on which tribe you were from. For example, geographically, the tribe you came from, say Reuben or Issachar, would determine where in the land of Canaan, in, in Israel, you actually lived. It would tell you where your address was. Vocationally, your tribe could be quite significant as well, because the tribe of Levi was the tribe from which the priests and the Levites were drawn who helped to arrange God's uh, worship and the sacrifices for God's people. 
So not only geographically, but also vocationally. And even there's a prophetic significance to the tribe that you might have been from. The prophets made it known and made it clear that from the, from the tribe of Judah would come the Messiah. And so if that was your tribe, it, was, it wouldn't have been uncommon for parents to pray that the Messiah would come from their own family. So we're trying to put the puzzle together and answer the question, why this unusual greeting? By the way, it's unusual in the entire New Testament for, the, uh, for a letter to open in this way. So why does James open his letter with this unusual greeting, the 12 tribes of the dispersion? The first thing we saw is the who question. The 12 tribes are the, the 12 sons of Jacob and the organizing principle. And they came to be known, the 12 tribes of Israel came to be known as a shorthand for saying all of God's chosen people. But what about this place, the dispersion? Where is this place? In order to understand this, I need to give you a brief history lesson, but I think it'll be interesting, so let me know what you think. We were talking about the the 12 sons of Jacob. You won't be uh, surprised to know that amongst 12 brothers, it wasn't uncommon for there to be disagreements between them. It is tragic how sin and disobedience too often has a way of dividing siblings, isn't it? Well, that's what happened, and so 10 of the brothers, 10 of these descendants, the 10 tribes of Jacob, had a quarrel with two of the brothers, two of the sons of Jacob, and as a result, they wound up separating from one another. And so the 10 separated tribes, also known as the northern tribes, also known as Israel, wound up having their own king in this civil war or civil separation. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, also wound up having their own king. And if you read the historical books of the Old Testament, if you read Kings and Chronicles, you wind up reading about sort of the parallel tracks of the, of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. And it's describing these two groups of separated brothers amongst the 12 sons of Israel or Jacob. And not long after the 12 tribes were separated into the northern and the southern tribes, the, the northern tribes fell into idolatry and evil behavior and disobedience to God. Among the famous wicked kings, for, for instance, of the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes are famous king uh, Jeroboam and Ahab, to name just two. And because of their idolatry, God removes his hand of protection from Israel, the northern tribes, and allows the superpower of the time, the Assyrian Empire, to cart off all the treasures and many of the leading individuals from the northern tribes into a place called exile or captivity, a diaspora. At first, the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were a little arrogant, and they were like, see, we told you. But it wasn't more than 100 years later than a new superpower came onto the scene, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Judah and Benjamin also fell into idolatry, and as a result, they were also carried off into exile, into the dispersion. And along with this, the temple itself was destroyed. The wall of Jerusalem was turned to rubble, and nearly everything was set ablaze. Now the chosen people all 12 tribes 
had no recognizable presence or identity within the land of Canaan, the promised land. All of their careful tribal identities had been mixed up like a tossed salad as they moved into exile. They had no king, no land, and no temple. They lived in dispersion. They lived in the diaspora. What does this mean? One scholar, Robert Wall, explains it this way. Diaspora calls attention to the suffering of a people who are cut off from societal and religious support systems. Diaspora locates a people in a world of conflict in which they are strangers in a strange land, spiritually tested and refined, but homeless. Think about this and what it's like even to move to a new place if you've ever moved to a new place. Getting used to new foods, new traditions, new place names, places to shop. In some cases, if you move to an entirely different culture, you're getting used to ways of thinking and feeling that are entirely foreign to you and you're clueless. And if that culture speaks a different language, it's even harder. And if that culture speaks a different language and is hostile towards you and mocking you and your beliefs and your views and your values and your God, it's even harder yet. That's where this is. So James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. But thirdly, where are they now? This is the third puzzle piece, the third question we need to answer in order to get a grasp on who James's audience is. And by the way, by understanding who James is writing to, we can appreciate ourselves and, get, and, and see ourselves in James's letter as well. Well, the short answer is the 12 tribes never again return to the scene in the Bible. Following the exile of the northern kingdom and then following 100 years later the exile of the, of the southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin, the 12 tribes never reappear in the Bible. Now, there have been some efforts to reconnect the 12 tribes in the land. For instance, after the exile was coming to a close under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, there was a massive effort to regather God's people in the land and to rebuild the wall and even to begin rebuilding the temple. Some of those who returned had kept track of their tribal ancestry and could verify, for instance, that they were a bona fide member of the tribe of Levi and therefore qualified to serve as a priest. But of those who returned, we'll just say 50,000 of 5 million was a tiny fraction. Most of the tribes remain in the diaspora, in the dispersion. Most of them remain settled in a foreign land. They've, at this point, 70, 80, 100 years have passed. They've learned the language. Their children have learned the language, and they know where their grocery store is, and they have their local synagogue in Babylon or in Persia or wherever it may be. settled in and amongst the Gentiles and the lands where they had been resettled or moved. And as a result of this, there's something of a, an awkward note that the Bible ends on, the Old Testament part of the Bible anyway. It sort of ends on a, on a breath. If you're ever in a conversation with someone and someone goes, you turn and say, what are you going to say? And the Bible sort of ends on this breath. 
Where are the 12 tribes? What's going to happen? Think of it as a minor key or maybe an incomplete sculpture or a half-finished painting. It sort of ends like a story where the best part, the climax, the punchline, has been left out or even lost. But throughout the Old Testament, there are hints that the story isn't over. There are hints that the 12 tribes may not be gone for good. Even though the Old Testament ends on an incomplete note, Ezra and Daniel, for instance, the very same prophets who warned about and predicted the coming of the exile also saw a glimpse of a future in which there would be a full restoration and renewal of all 12 tribes. They caught a glimpse of a world in which all of God's people would be together again. Isaiah 49, verse 6, the servant of the Lord will raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel, speaking specifically of those who survived the exile. Isaiah 54, verse 7, and Isaiah 56, verse 8, God will eventually regather his people, emphasis with great mercy. Isaiah 63, verse 17, where the prophet begs God to regather the tribes of God's heritage. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28, predicts a time when Israel and Judah will be reunited with David himself as their king, and God himself would be present among them in their midst. And in Malachi chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, the prophet explains that the coming of the Messiah will inaugurate a restoration of the true Israel. And it's not just the Old Testament either. In the New Testament, Jesus over and over again claims that the 12 tribes in Israel are restored in himself. That he is the new king, the one who would gather all of God's people again in himself. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The tribes are being regathered even as we speak. Consider just a few scriptures, Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, and Matthew 15, 24. Jesus comes to the lost sheep, the diaspora sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to aid him in seeking out these lost sheep, Jesus appoints 12 apostles, 12 apostles, and he sends them out to all four corners of the world to preach the gospel and to bring home God's chosen but lost and wandering sheep. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, in Revelation 14, verse 1, and in Revelation 21, 12 and 13, the 12 tribes of Israel are portrayed with a symbolic number, 12 times 12, 12 squared, 144,000 with an even number of people, again, prophetically, symbolically being drawn from each one of these 12 tribes, representing the fullness of the elect from all tribes and nations all across the world. And then at the end of time, Matthew 19, verse 28, having completed their task, the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones and judging the nations in the judgment. So, where are the 12 tribes today? What's the answer to this third question? Well, James believes 
that some of them are reading this letter. Some of those 12 tribes have already been identified and the process of restoration has already begun. The lost sheep of the exiled people of God have begun to be found. Those who had been geographically scattered, but more importantly, spiritually and socially lost, God was rebuilding them in Christ to become a new people, a new community. James's favorite word for this new community is brothers or beloved brothers. He also calls them the church in his epistle. In a nutshell, with this phrase, the 12 tribes of the dispersion, James is making it clear that the identity of the people to whom he writes are the chosen people of God who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's several layers then to this identity. It's a geographic identity. It's, it's clear based on scholarship that James's apostle is located in Jerusalem, in the capital city. And so he's specifically writing to people who he can't talk to in Jerusalem or even in the Roman province of Palestine. So these are people who are far flung beyond the regions. It's a geographic identity, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. They're the ones reading it. People James can't speak to directly. It's also an ethnic identity. These are Jews. James, I believe, is the earliest written document we have in the New Testament, probably written potentially as early as 42 or 44 A.D., a mere 10 years after our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, earlier than Paul's earliest epistle, which would be 1 Thessalonians. Not so early that Paul hasn't started his ministry, but the earliest written document. And James, if Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, James is like an apostle to the Jews, and he's writing to Jews. He doesn't address Gentiles specifically. He's not excluding them per se. But he uses a uniquely Jewish way to describe the mission of the church, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. In fact, the word Christian had not yet come to be widely used when James was writing. But it's also a spiritual identity. It's not just geographic and ethnic, but it's a spiritual identity. He's not just writing to any Jew. Now, it's true, any Jew would see this phrase, 12 tribes of the dispersion, and their, their pulse would quicken. Their, their, they, their, their hands would become sweaty. They might become flushed with excitement. What? The 12 tribes? They're being regathered? But James makes it explicit. This isn't just the regathering program that you thought it was going to be. It's the regathering of God's people in and through Jesus Christ. As Paul would write in Ephesians, he's predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son through Jesus Christ. We're becoming sons through Christ. Christ is the path for the 12 tribes to be regathered. God's promised restoration in the prophets was taking place in Jesus. So these are Jewish Christians. These are Messianic Jews, if you will, Jewish believers 
in the Messiah, Jewish followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, servants, as James describes himself, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is their spiritual identity. There's also a social identity that's being pointed out. Because they're in the dispersion, James is recognizing not just that they're not living in Palestine, but that at some level, socially and emotionally and relationally, they are poor and disenfranchised. I quoted Robert Wall's definition of diaspora earlier. I want to read it again. Diaspora calls attention to the suffering of a people who are cut off from social and religious support systems. You're a Jew in the first century and say A.D. 35, A.D. 40, and you hear about this Jesus, and you discover that, that he is the one the prophets spoke of. He is the, the hope of the world and the light for the Gentiles, and you put your faith in him, but the rabbi of the local synagogue does not approve and throws you out. And as a result, you may even live in Jerusalem itself. But you're now cut off from both religious and social support systems. So you are located, as Robert Wall says, in a world of conflict where you're being spiritually tested, tried, refined. You're being forced, somewhat against your will, to weigh your loyalties between your family and your, your religious upbringing and your heritage and what God is calling you to do. In a nutshell, you're, you're being forced to reckon with what Jesus said. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are not the ones banging on the door outside asking me to talk to them. They're the ones inside this room sitting at my feet hearing my words and following God. So in this sense, we see James's definition of family, which was last Sunday's message, and James's address to the 12 tribes of the dispersion coming together as creating a countercultural identity for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. James then becomes a blueprint for how you live your life in the world but not of the world, as the vanguard, the first fruits of the ingathering of the 12 tribes. In this sense, I think there's another identity that's worth pointing out. James is suggesting that there is an end times identity here. If you're into theology, we can think of this as an eschatological identity. The eschaton meaning the last day. By addressing his readers, those who would read this letter, and by addressing you who are hearing this letter explained 20 centuries later, by addressing you as the 12 tribes, he's addressing you as, as those whose identity is located in the fullness of time, in the last day and who are living not for this life alone, but for that which is to come. This life is sometimes called, this new life is sometimes called the eschaton. Faith in the dispersion is difficult. Because of this, some or many in the diaspora are threatened, and in some cases then, as today, 
Some of your salvation is hanging by a very thread. Not necessarily from the perspective of God, because God knows whose are His. But in your experience, you're precariously teetering on the brink of diving in headfirst into the raging river of culture and society's norms, of abandoning the heritage and the blessing of being amongst the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And so James is reminding the end times people that this life is not all there is. There is more to come. Your best is yet to come. And you cannot, you must not define your world and your experience and your situation simply based on what's happening in this fleeting moment. Because you're part of the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And as Paul would say, and as we'll see next week, these light and momentary afflictions are not to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed. So this is an end times identity. By faith, Paul in Galatians calls this the obedience of faith. By the heavenly strength, which only God can provide, James emphasizes this in terms of wisdom. with the spiritual wisdom rested and wrestled from heaven, you will know what to do and you will be able to stand in spite of all the attacks and all the weakness that you feel. The end times eschatological people of God will find their faith tested, but they will overcome. They will find themselves weakened, but they will have the strength that they need to withstand and not just persevere, but to experience victory. You will be strengthened and matured by all that you're experiencing in the diaspora. God has not abandoned you. He is not located on this mountain or that mountain in this time or that time, the golden age of the 50s or the 1850s or the 1750s. God is as much present today as he was 100, 200, 2,000 years ago, and he is building his church. And the 12 tribes are being brought in. And James is writing to you. He wants you to know who you are. But he also wants to invite you to identify with what God is doing in the world. James sees the renewal of the people of God with this phrase, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He sees it as a, an appetizer. I love appetizers. They kill my eating out budget, but I often can't resist. And what's good about an appetizer is it satisfies your taste, but it doesn't take away your appetite for dinner. And James is saying the 12 tribes of the dispersion are, are an appetizer, a foretaste of the good things to come, the new creation, the representative beginning of a whole new world. In fact, in you, if you are part of these 12 tribes, the very light of the new world shines. This is what Jesus meant when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. 
and you are the salt of the earth. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. And salt that's lost its savor is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. By calling them the 12 tribes, James intends to give them hope that in spite of their suffering and the temptation to give up, in spite of the allurements of society and the messages and the values and norms which are crashing about you and drowning out almost all remnants of the voice of God in your head, in spite of all of this, in spite of the seeming plausibility of of prevailing majority thought patterns, that abandoning the faith makes the most sense, relinquishing the prize that has been offered to you is a good deal in spite of all of that. It's worth it because the ingathering of all of God's people, the promised messianic restoration, has already begun. And the eyes of faith will see it. You'll see it in, in the cold, blowing wind. You'll see it in the blistering heat. You'll see it with $60 in your checking account. You see it hung over from yet another night, wasted. You see it. You hear it in the birds and in the voice of your mother in your head. You see it in, a, in an ungrateful and oppressive employer. Insensitive spouse or parents or children. You see it. The first fruits of creation are breaking through every obstacle and every barrier. No weather pattern and no presidential administration or cultural downgrade can stop the advance and the ingathering of the 12 tribes of the dispersion. We should therefore pay attention to the comforts that James offers in this letter and heed and obey the warnings. I began my sermon this morning pointing out how hard it is to be at home in the world Particularly for me, anyway, as a teenager, I found it almost impossible. In her article, Stranger in a Strange Land, Kelsey Osgood describes her own experience as an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn. She cites the Hebrew term, Gerv Tiosav, which is a person, quote, both a resident and an alien or a stranger. According to Ms. Osgood, Abraham himself uses this term in Genesis when he searches for a burial plot for his wife, Sarah. He says to the Hittites, among whom he lived, I am both an alien and a citizen among you. It's the fact that he was a citizen that made them want to give him the burial land. Hey, you're one of us. And it's the fact that he was an alien that made him want to pay for it, which he did. I encourage you to reread that story about the death of Sarah. It's precious. Well, this alien and citizen was the precarious position that the Jewish people experienced in their Babylonian exile and in their Assyrian captivity. It is also the precarious position that anyone who wants to maintain a distinct religious identity in a deeply secular world, must wrestle with. 
But for Christians, it's different. For Christians, it isn't just about tradition or ethnicity or religion. The difference with the Christian position, even from that of a modern Orthodox Jew like Miss Osgood, is that we believe God himself has taken up as an alien residence among us. We believe that the Messiah has come and dwelt amongst us, pitched his tent, as John suggestively describes when he uses the phrase tabernacled amongst us in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled, (coughs) excuse me, amongst us. Our precarious position, therefore, is nothing like that of any other religion where God has to be accessed through a series of steps and channels and rules. God has come to us and he's taken your your tightrope weakness. If you're honest, you see it. And he's put underneath your feet a solid foundation. Something on which you can stand. You can build a life on that. By faith, we know that we are solidly situated. Our lives are built upon a more solid foundation than anything else you might choose, find, or might be offered to you. We are the advanced guard of a global renewal in which the lost sheep of the house of Israel and all people from all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, will be restored. Not to this denomination, not to that tradition, not to this land or that land, but to communion with God in a global new creation where the knowledge of God, we're told, will will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So in conclusion, James believes that the promises of the prophets are coming true in the person of Jesus. And we are to read that and understand it, even if you didn't before. You are to read that now in the first verse of James's epistle. James doesn't want you to get even into the instruction before recognizing who am I and what is my calling. I am part of the renewed and the renewing people of God. I am being renewed and I am called to bring renewal to others. The light has shined upon my dark heart, and I am called to shine the light and love of the Lord in every dark and broken place that I come to. James is challenging you to be amongst these ingathering saints. He calls them the beloved brothers, to be counted amongst them, and to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is challenging you to follow Jesus, in other words, in a negative world where this path will most definitely cost you something. There is no cheap and easy way. You are being identified to, invited to identify yourself with the ingathering of the 12 tribes and to accept your place in the dispersion and to be okay with that for now. How can you apply this morning's message to your own life? Consider these three. 
One, I want to challenge you to work out your own faith with fear and trembling. You need to work out your salvation. You need to grab a hold of it and work on it. Now, you don't, Paul says, you you don't work with your own strength. This is not a, a pulling myself up by my bootstraps effort. But you need to choose to look at it, to think about it, to be intentional. You know, the church is shrinking in part and growing in part. I don't know if you knew this. The part that's growing are those, are those Christians who, who are serious about their faith. The, the part of the Christian church that's shrinking, and has been for probably 50 to 75 years, are the cultural Christians, the, the go-along-to-get-along types. It's just, well, everybody else is going to church, may as well do it. The number of committed Christians is actually growing over the last 75 years. It's remarkable. This life, this world is a negative world, and you are God's chosen people, sinners saved by grace. And you need to live like your faith makes a difference in your life, like it's worth something. Secondly, I want to encourage you not just to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but accept the hardship of the dispersion. Stop complaining, moaning and groaning, as my dad would say. There's another way you can phrase that. The dispersion is your reality. Exile is your defined context. Jeremiah 29 is written to exiles, and it's very appropriate for us to read it today as a shot in the arm for our optimism. Stop telling me why you have trouble finding a wife, why you have trouble finding a job, why you have trouble getting along with your wife, why you're having trouble with your kids, why you can't pick a church, why this, why that, why this, why that. Stop! This is the exile. What do you expect? Life is challenging in exile. It's marked by sin at every step. Cain was told sin is crouching at your door, and it is. But you must master it. And he didn't, but you must. Accept the hardship of the exile until things are restored, as they will be very soon. At some deep level of your heart and mind, you need to embrace that you were scattered abroad, dispersed from your home, and living like aliens and yet citizens. You've got to accept it. Your heavenly home, the new heavens and the new earth, is only hinted at by James, but Peter makes it much more explicit. Another Catholic or general epistle, listen to how Peter writes to the exiles in Rome, 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Wow. Boy, that's a message for us. Finally, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Accept the hardship of the dispersion. Finally, welcome the stranger. There's a temptation for exiles and scattered people to huddle up into little ethnic enclaves. We speak the same language, we eat the same food, we like the same things. It's great. So we come to church and we look around and we see the people that we know and we go talk to them. And when we're done, we leave. And I'm a Christian. No. That is a cheap counterfeit for the picture that we have here before us this morning. You were called to welcome the stranger. If you have been gathered into the 12 tribes, you didn't deserve that. There's nothing about you that's sort of extra special. It's God's love, it's God's mercy, it's God's grace which has been lavished upon you. Don't keep it to yourself. Think of it as a hot potato. You need to pass it on. Shine a light to the next person. There's someone in your life who's not quite far along as you are that needs to know what you're being taught, who needs to hear what, what is inspiring you, who needs to be encouraged with what's encouraging you, who needs to be challenged with what's challenging you, and I'll never be able to meet them. And even if I did, they're going to be like, nice to meet you, pastor. Can we be done now? You're the royal nation. You're the holy priesthood. I've noticed there's a tendency amongst us that the priesthood of all believers applies only when the pastor wants you to do something. You don't get to tell me what to do. But when it comes to sharing the mission of the church and of the kingdom of God, well, now it's all the pastor's job. Come on, people. We are the people of God. And I am, if I may put it this way, the joker who's been paid to talk to you for about 30 minutes or 40 minutes. But it's your job to be God's people. You are the 12 tribes. Tribes, plural. It's a corporate entity. It's the body of Christ. And we all have our role to play. Don't isolate yourself from the stranger. Don't isolate yourself from danger. Risk life and limb to the accomplishment of your part of God's mission in renewing, restoring, and rescuing strangers from their diaspora. Now, that's a diaspora when you're exiled from God. Bring them home. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in half a verse, we have such a treasure of instruction and inspiration for our lives, so practical, so profound, simple, yet so deep, challenging. What a blessing. Thank you, God, that you've not left us in ignorance. You've not left us without the scriptures. They are indeed the path, and they mark the path for our feet. 
I pray, God, that anyone amongst us who is wavering in his faith would be brought back and rejoin the 12 tribes. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are strong in our faith today, that we would not be smug or proud and arrogant and conceited, as is so often the case with religious people and Christians. We'd be humble. We'd reach out behind us to recognize that it's not I, but Christ in me. Use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.